asking the same question over and over. <laughs> uh, so, but, you know, finally figured out that I could actually distribute that to the community itself. So we have like 10 engineering partners, we call them, that are okay. also gigsters, but they're, you know, like the top gigsters in the community. Yeah. And I basically just um, gave them my playbook, like told them the questions I asked, told them what I looked for. And so right now there are probably interviews going on that I'm, you know, I have no idea like that they are Oof. completely, they've completely taken that over from me. Oh, so okay. the people that I'm interviewing now are people who want to work uh, on With, the Gigster team, on the, yeah, yeah, building the, yeah, building the platform and, and all of that. Um, to to respond to your question, though, I think, I think you, I definitely empathize with what you're saying. Like, you yeah. definitely always feel like there's some subjective element to it, and you know, you have to change things every time. But yeah. um, I found that actually sitting down and forcing yourself to come up with a process that makes sense uh, okay. is very is very useful. And the thing to look for is like. Um, how can I ask things or how can I do things that are very high signal? Because if you ask people to do something that 100 other people can do, um, even though that like, like you might say, oh, you know, like this person just be co- going to be coding on the job. Yeah. So I'm going to give them a task that's very similar to what they'll be doing, doing on, the job. on the job. Well, yeah. that's not really the high signal because probably many people can do that thing, you know, um, equally well. And so then you're stuck trying to figure out whether this person is good enough because all five people you gave the same problem did it well. So you want something where, or a series of things where like only one person out of five or out of hundred even yeah. um, would actually shine and, and come out come out right. And that's, usually it's not one question, it's like five different dimensions that are important to you. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, you, you write them down. Um, you actually have to write it down like, okay, I want someone who fits my culture. Okay, what is my culture? So in Gigstar's case, one big part of it is that you have to have been someone who, you have to be someone who builds things like on, on their own, yeah. not just like on your job or at school, because part of what we do at Gigstar is build things. And the founders are like that. Like we built tons of things before we made Gigstar. So, so that one actually surprisingly is a very big, uh, is, a, is a very strong uh, splitting kind of question where like you ask that, and most people haven't done anything outside of school and work. And so it's yeah. usually like a very good question to ask, like, tell me some projects that you've done, you know, not school, not work related. And they're like, uh, you know, well, in school I did. Not <laughs> school, you <know? laughs> so, you know, you'd be surprised. There's some questions with just very high signal that you figure those out and you ask them all the time. There's no need to change them. Um, you ask them all the time because it's a very hard thing for somebody to, actually be someone who works on side projects you can't fake that because if you make something up then i'm going to ask okay how does it work when uh-huh, did you do it uh-huh, what language uh-huh, did you use and uh-huh. then it's like you know the whole thing comes out so yeah that's kind of what i focus on is like okay i come up with the process come up with like some key areas that i know are important like culture technical ability um you know whatever but then i try to figure out the highest signal questions to ask in each area that um really separate the people who are really good from from people who are okay People who are okay are fine, but you obviously, if you can get people that are really good, that that's what you want. So yeah, yeah, perfect. That's kind of how it works for me. Perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tolu, how about you? Um, how my week was? No. Well, okay. How was your week? Let's start with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to know. Was that what you asked? Yeah. I'll do the okay. week. Cool. I mean, it was okay. Um, so this week, we, even though we haven't officially launched Scribe, we did a post just pretty much explaining what Scribe is about. And in a 
one liner, it's pretty much your um, remote written content team. Um, and we've gotten really good feedback off of that post. Um, a lot of people reaching out to say, hey, can we use you? Um, what's the process? And that's kind of really helpful because now we see how the process flow when we, as we're building the platform should be. And a lot of my week was just spent on calls and managing inbounds with my co-founder. And that has been really encouraging. Somebody asked how my week was in a sentence. It was amazingly busy because, I mean, it's really nice to have a product that even without having launched, there's a lot of um, yeah. inbounds, yeah. not just people wanting to see what it's about, but people actually wanting to wanting sign to up. Use it. And right now, we have about four people that are signed up already. Three of them have dropped their money and we do not have a platform <laughs> right so for me that's like wow thank you god um so yeah i'll still my, my week was really good and I, I really hope it continues on this tangent and i hope that we can meet up with all the expectations so far because now it's it has set a standard that we have to keep on beating every time so the pressure is on all right cool cool yeah so yeah so what's um yeah, well, when I said, how about you, earlier, uh, my question was mm -hmm. now going to be around um, interviewing developers and all that. So I know um, during your time at, yeah, but it's fine that you, <laughs> I totally <laughs> forgot you had not introduced your week. So, yeah, um, knowing that you've worked at CCUB for a bit and all that, meaning that you were basically interacting with a number of developers, developers of all sorts, you know, back then. And... Um, well, in building your platform as well. I think your time immersed as well. You had to work with a yeah. number of developers. And currently in building your platform, you've had to also employ the services of um, different developers and all that. So how do you approach it? What are the things you look out for? No. Yeah, in, in my how, case, how it, much it has of a been... headache is it for you? It's, I guess, for me, it's slightly more of a headache than I assume it will be for you or Debo. And so, Debo, is your background in tech, perchance? The boy is a developer. The boy built okay, cool. the first version of Geekstar, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> we are taking the wrong way. Like, we need to, I need to know a bit more about Devo. So I know the kind of question. <laughs> so I'm going to pause my answer to that question and ask Devo, please introduce yourself for me and the audience. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, I just try to do the short version. Um, so. Debo, I'm, you know, obviously Nigerian. I went to King's College. Um, I, uh, you know, did school out here in the U.S. I did physics, a lot of physics, and uh, I did physics and electrical engineering at Cornell. I was in my, I was in my PhD there. I, um, I was always sort of working on startups, though, on, on the side. I was always building stuff and um, actually built something very similar to Instacart in Nigeria in like 2007. So before iPhone, before, you know, Instacart itself. Um, but, you know, obviously that's a bad idea. It's too early to, uh -huh. you know, just, <laughs> so, so you're ahead of your time. It's not a yeah. good thing. So anyways, I, uh, but, but that, 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 that also shows, I guess, how long I've been thinking about marketplaces and things like that. But, uh, anyways, worked on a lot of software projects. So my PhD was on uh, trying to build a, a silicon laser. And the idea there is that um, if you could use light 
instead of um, so light's the fastest thing we know of, um, and you can if you could use that to process information in computers rather than transistors or electron-based circuits, then you could make much more efficient computers, much much faster computers. Okay. Um, and so this project was funded by uh, six million dollar project funded by Department of Defense, and it was Cornell, MIT, Stanford, and Caltech, and uh, I was a Cornell representative. Um, so yeah, did did some good stuff there, uh, but I was always just sort of spending more time trying to build. Well, the reason I worked on that project was I thought that it would be the kind of thing that um, I could accomplish in a few years and uh, maybe commercialize it and you know uh, make a company out of it. Um, so my my whole excuse for doing a PhD really was so that I wouldn't get a job actually, and so I could like work on my ideas there. And so I just I just saw my the I saw my thesis as just one of those ideas. Um, and so when I realized that re research was a little bit more. Yeah, what? You said um, the reason why you did your PhD was so you wouldn't get a job. Why were you averse to getting a job? Well, not, not, <laughs> I wasn't, well, it's more like so that I, I, I could work on my ideas, so that I could work on, 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 on my ideas. And if I got a job um, right out of school, the chances of me being free to, to work on my ideas would be um, a little a little smaller. Um, I mean, I, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but that that's not necessarily always true. You can get a job in a certain kind of company where what you're working on is awesome, and you know you can you know come up with ideas still, and still stuff. Still do your own stuff, but, yeah. Yeah, but at, at the time, that's how I thought of things. I was like, oh, you know, like I'm just going to be in some boring company, and I won't be able to do what I want to do. So, but PhD, I don't know if anyone's done a PhD, but it's amazing. You can wake up whenever you want. You can like do whatever you want, and I let, and they're even and they're even paying you to do that. So it's it's awesome. No, the only so, thing I've heard is amazing. Like, like I have yeah, PhD, and they they just want they say it's this intense roller coaster that is almost always dipping. Like they have this period where they just yeah, want to yeah, cuddle. Yeah, yeah it's it's like so, that. It's like that too. But I. Because I wasn't going in trying to actually, I mean, my plan was that I would figure something out before. So as it was getting closer to graduation, I was actually freaking out. Not, not, I wasn't happy. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is a sign that I haven't done anything yet. So anyway, so when I realized that like research was a little bit, um, you know, more political and more about, you know, publishing papers than actually getting stuff done, I, I started doing more and more software stuff. Um, and then I just decided, you know what, let me just move out to, to San Francisco, um, since this seems to be what I'm doing more of. Uh, so I moved out to San Francisco, worked on a bunch of, um, of, of ideas and kind of led to, you know, working on Gigster, um, in 2014. And, uh, Gigster was part of the Y-Combinator summer batch, um, and we, um, we are a company that um, connects individuals and businesses with teams of uh, software development teams to, to help build projects. And uh, we are uh, funded by Andreessen Horowitz and we're a Series A company at this point. So that's kind of my background slash what's going on with Gigster. So you said to say you dropped out as well. <laughs> yes, it's safe to say that. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on leave, technically. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, the idea of Gigster, is it just you? Are you the, a single founder of it? No, no. Um, so, there are two founders. Um, myself, my co-founder, Roger. Roger Dickey. 
And how did you guys come up with the idea of it? I know you said you've always been interested in marketplaces, but why this particular type of software as a service? service? Uh, yeah, cool. So, I mean, I think um, one, one big thing is, um, <clears throat> I mean, I think, of, I think of two things. One is, like, you look at all these networks out there, um, like, from way back, and you see like, oh, Facebook is really big, and then LinkedIn is really big, and and then <clears throat> these are all networks connecting people that know each other. And then you say, mm-hmm. okay, well, if there are gonna be other networks in the future, they're gonna be things that connect people that don't know each other. And you say, okay, well, like, what do people that don't know each other like to do? Well, one thing they like to do is date each other, and then the other mm-hmm. thing they like to do is buy and sell from each other. And that's pretty much it. Um, so I'm not gonna be making a dating site. So I might as well, like, be, making, <laughs> <laughs> as well be making something that. So I mean, this is from like the abstract physics type of thinking level, uh, but but from the like more human level, like I just think that there's there's almost nothing more uh, impactful you can do than to enable people, um, you know, earn a living or you know, sort of like start a business or whatever. So so like what Ezra is doing, uh, he's enabling payments for, for people. This is the same sort of philosophy where like you sit underneath um what everyone is doing and then you empower them so even even what you're doing like you're gonna connect people with with writers right so any anyone anytime you build a platform that allows someone else thrive or allows someone else make a living um i think it's like one of the most powerful kinds of uh of things you can build so i've always kind of been into that but then on the other hand i feel like the only reason that we need to make these things connect people to people is because we, we don't have robots yet. So if you had robots, you wouldn't need marketplaces. You would just, the robot would just write your code. The robot will drive you around, um, you know, a la like Uber's self-driving cars. The robot would just do everything, right? And then you wouldn't need a marketplace. So I've always been fascinated by that, like, idea that, like, on one hand, I want to make something that, like, really empowers people. But then on the other hand, I do, I do want to see what it's like to build, like, things that are really intelligent. And, uh, and in any case... To go from where we are now to where we have robots, like it's going to be humans that are going to train and pull all that data out, and then eventually lead us to the point where um, where we can have uh, artificial intelligence. So anything that combines artificial intelligence with kind of marketplaces and labor um, is very uh, very interesting to me. So that's a high level. But then uh, when I moved here in I guess 2012 or so, um, I was living on $600 a month. Uh, in San Francisco, which if anyone knows, that's like pretty crazy. Yeah, I was actually sleeping in East Palo Alto for like a month. East Palo Alto is pretty rough. And then, um, and then I stayed with my cousin at Stanford for like another month. Like, yeah, so I was just kind of hopping around and uh, under the bridge, might as well call it under the bridge. The staff is a little nicer than, than the bridge. East Palo Alto is pretty close to the bridge, actually, uh, okay. right next to this Ikea. Yeah. But anyways, I, I was hustling, let's, let's just say it that way. And I, I would always say to myself that, like, dude, I know that my market value is way more than $600 a month, uh, but I'm just not going to go on Craigslist or Odesk or whatever to find a job to, to find a freelance you know job or yeah. consulting thing um it's, it's too much friction uh if someone would just come to me and say hey they were like build this thing for me here's ten thousand dollars you got two months 
I would I would do it, but I'm not gonna. I, I was so averse to the friction involved in doing all that stuff that I would just rather suffer and just work on my startup, right? Um, so it kind of like was always in the back of my mind that like you know if someone would just present this thing to me um, in this packaged way. Um, I would definitely do it. Yeah. And so I met Roger in 2013, and, and Roger was also kind of working on lots of ideas. I was working on lots of ideas. and But the, the common theme between us was we were, we were both working on uh, marketplaces and, you know, future of work type ideas. Um, and I think around, like, end of 2014, um, this just, it just came back to me that, like, uh, we, we built like 20 something different products by, by this point, by, by 2014. So, and these are products where we would build them, we would put them out, like they were actually supposed to work and then we would say, no, we don't want to do that one. So it just kind of came back to me, this thought of, um, you know, what if there was this, was, what if, what is it about me that makes me not want to use Odesk and Freelancer and all this stuff? And, and it kind of just dawned on me that like, uh, dawned on us that like, um, you have way more people like me out there, people that are founders of companies or they're working in big companies or whatever, and they are completely inaccessible to the, to the market for people that want software development done. It's kind of like how there are all of a sudden millions of taxi drivers now that we didn't yeah. know existed, yeah. right? These are people that just had cars and then Uber made this software that made it super easy for anyone to be a taxi driver. And now, boom, we've got all these extra taxi drivers we didn't know existed before. So people always say like, oh, you, <clears throat> you need to teach people how to code. We don't have enough engineers. And I think that that's great. That's true. But the contrarian point of view is that Actually, we do have we a lot of engineers. Lot, We're just yeah. not using them efficiently at all. That engineer in Google is basically, you know, sitting down for eight hours, like eating popcorn and like tweaking one little feature <laughs> in like one little big, you know, unused, you know, part of the of, of the code base that is not going to impact anything. You know, not 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 no offense to Google engineers. Obviously, <laughs> lots of Google engineers are doing awesome things, but a lot of people in big companies are really not doing much like with their with their work. Underutilized. Hours. Yeah, exactly. It's way underutilized. So and the reason that they're not, you know, just like me, they're not available is because too much friction involved in being in being involved. So the first thing you have to do is you have to make it so that I'm not bidding with anyone. I'm not like, you know, making a profile. I'm not doing marketing. I'm not doing sales. I'm not managing any clients. You just give me a spec. I write code and I get paid. If you did that, then awesome. So you start from that and you say, okay, this insight that if we can get these underutilized developers on board, we would get um, all the customers because they would want to use these developers from MIT and Google and, and wherever. But how do you get something to a developer without bidding and without um, them making profiles and all this stuff. It means that you have to already have figured out the price of the project before you pass it on to the developer. Yes. And how do you figure out the price of a project without bidding? It means that you, you need to somehow understand what the project is and be able to figure out the price. So then machine learning and AI comes into, comes into play. So you kind of just work backwards from the idea that, you know, Debo wants to freelance, Roger wants to freelance. How do we make a system that allows these people who never freelanced before um, uh, join, join the market and be able to freelance? And then you, then you come up with Gigster. And Gigster, the experience is you come to the site, you click a button, you say what you want, you get a price immediately. You get uh, an estimate for how long it's going to take immediately, and you get a full proposal. If you pay, immediately a team is spun up, and the team is a product manager, 
developers, designers. So it's like a full team of people and they start chugging along and working on a project. And just like clockwork, and you know, every week they give you updates, um, and at the end, you know, everything's done. So that's that's, and then you know, the developers they just get invited to things, just like an Uber driver gets invited to uh, to to accept a ride. And so you would just get an invite, like, hey Ezra, there's a new project. It's twenty thousand dollar payout, and it's for iOS. Do you, you know it's going to be a month? Do you want it or not? And that's like, kind of how yay, things work. I so, want it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> So uh, I know, like, like Larry is on the is on the not to call him out, but he's on he's on Geekster now, and yeah. he's doing a ton of projects. It's like how's he even how's he even having how's he even have time to do this? So that that's the other beautiful thing about it is, uh, so yeah, so that I mean that experience I think is like super streamlined, super easy for for customers, but also super easy for the developers, which allows us to get. Um, a whole new class of developers we've never got before, and then now I'm even seeing people, you know, people from Nigeria on the on the site, people from you know Europe and all these other places um, uh, on the site, and we pay everyone the same. So even if you're Nigerian or you're in Chile or wherever, like exchange rates notwithstanding, like we'll pay you uh, the same amount that we pay like someone in San Francisco. So people are doing really well on the platform. Yeah. <laughs> nice one. Modding and thinking how, like, I can pretty much, you know how they say Uber for X? I feel like when I'm describing Scribe to people, I should just say Scribe is geek stuff for writers. Because, like, <laughs> I'm here thinking how this this is how I envision it. And starting what we're doing is similar to what you're saying. Like, my co founder and I are freelance writers, and we are both on Upwork, Odesk, what have you. But that's. Mm-hmm. That hassle of having to bid the friction, the yeah. you have seventy thousand people bidding for the tiniest job, something that you yeah. think should be like two dollars. Somebody else in some country, say Philippines, is telling you two dollars, and you're like, why do I start? Exactly. You mean? Yeah. 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 So all that, how could we take away all that? Not just for the freelance writers, but also for the clients. You don't want to come on and start managing fifty thousand people and start to decide which one works for you. Is it possible right. that you? I just mean, the clients don't know. They don't even. They might not even know what a good writer is. Exactly. <laughs> and then, and then, and then, Upwork will tell you that oh, these reviews mean something. But sure. You know. <laughs> All right. Cool. So, as an aside, I'm coming to talk to you, Debo. Thank you very much. But moving on, um, I liked what. You- <laughs> about how now you're getting developers from Nigeria signing up and I was wondering what's that like what are the numbers like in terms of who's the most where do most of your developers come from and what are the most surprising countries you have listed for developers on Gigster? Uh Most of our developers are in the US for sure um, I, I, I mean like 70% of them um, in the US but um, you have people in Western Europe as well, um, have a pretty strong presence there. Um, and then um, Nigeria, um, South Africa, like a lot of people from uh, a certain company there that's pretty prominent elsewhere as well um, are, are like, it's going viral within that company. Um, and then um, in South Africa. And we got some applicants from Kenya as well. We've got some. Uh, I've got someone from Egypt. The strangest is there. Is there a strange country? Um, I guess not. Not not strange, but surprising. Yeah, is, surprising. Um, yeah, surprising is probably China. 
the fact that oh. I sort of assumed that it would take us a while to get someone from China because of language issues. But, um, you know, there are expatriates that, you know, and then there are people in China, obviously, that know English as well. So uh, it, maybe it's not too surprising. But I saw a few people coming in from China and I was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's interesting, actually. Yeah. So how do you handle the... Master. Well, but, but perhaps the most surprising thing, okay. sorry, that's not really developer related that happened is we got customers from India using Gigster. <laughs> so you would think that usually it's kind yeah. of the other way around. Yeah, like they should have a lot of <laughs> software development shops yeah. in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. One thing is, like, so, the guest we had on the show last week, yeah. um, Shirin, she's Indian. She actually said she's struggling to find a developer and she's Indian. So like, I... From that so conversation, this, it this makes sense, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it was yeah. it was surprising as well when she said that last week. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I want to know happening. something. How do you handle the issue of IP? Um, um, IP of what we build. Yes. Um, so we actually, you know, we said this um, in like a bunch of announcements that have come out. So I don't think it's. I think it's a big deal to say, but yeah. So we actually own the, we own the IP to, we own the code that we write, and we license it to to customers. Okay. And we allow customers fully own the code if they want. Um, they just pay a little bit more. Okay. Um, and the re you know the reason for that is um, because we own the code, we have uh, the ability to reuse the code. Yes, and so if we can reuse the code, then you can uh, work you know, faster. The the <laughs> the sky is the limit <laughs> for what you can do. True. Uh, considering considering that lots of applications are pretty similar to each other. So so at that point, it's now up to the different clients to decide whether they want whether yeah whether um, you want something cheaper or whether yeah, you want to exactly. really pay all that money just to own your just to own. You, you know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> is so, it really worth it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And most people are like, no, you know what? I don't really want to own it. It's yeah. not a big deal. All right. All right. Uh, because 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 you have all the rights. You have every single right that's pretty much indistinguishable from from ownership. Mm -hmm. the, the only thing that's not there, I guess, is uh, copyright. So, um, but you can do. You can pretty much. You can sell stuff with the software. You could do everything um, that you would do. It's kind of like if you made a Shopify store, a WooCommerce store, or something like, you don't necessarily own the IP for WooCommerce itself, but yeah. obviously the store that you made and, uh, and whatever, you can do pretty much whatever you, whatever you would do your, with, yeah, exactly. what you do with the company. You're comfortable so, doing that anyway. No yeah, way. you're fine. You're not going to, you're not going to call WooCommerce up and, you know, hassle <laughs> them to, to, to give you the rights to. Yeah. <laughs> so from that perspective, it's not really scary at all. And customers are fine with that because they understand that. Um, that that leverage um, works in their favor as well. Yeah. All right. Okay. And how do you find customers? Or do they just, is it mostly inbound? Or how was your marketing in the beginning, getting people to know about Gigster and using the platform? Yeah, it's mostly inbound. And I think, like, you know, the first first version of Gigster that we put out was... Um, uh, the, the the you know it's always been very simple so now you know it's it's a little bit there's a little bit more going on on the website uh, we're good yes we are yeah okay so yeah go ahead 
I was just asking how you got your first set of customers and what the marketing has been like for Gigster so far, or if it's just mainly been inbound. Yeah, so I was saying, um, I think that part of the part of the thing that helped us out was the simplicity of the message and kind of how weird and new it sounded. So the copy on the homepage was just hire a developer in five minutes or something like that. And there was a simple input field in the bottom that was like, well, what do you want to build? And, you know, you just said what you wanted to build. You clicked a button. You were in a live chat with the person, um, in, you know, immediately. And you were talking to someone immediately. I mean, obviously, when, I launched, when we launched it, I, I was the person talking to people. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was like hundreds of people trying to chat with me and stuff. Um, I think I even put like a little surge pricing kind of module in there where if there were too many people trying to talk to me at the same time, I would ask them to pay, um, you know, like 500 bucks or 20 bucks, depending on uh, how, how much the demand was. And people were actually paying um, to get into, just to get into a chat um, with, with, with a developer. And the other thing that helped was, so one thing was just the messaging about speed. Like they felt that they could literally hire someone in five minutes and uh, you know, no, no one does that. So that was pretty interesting <laughs> to people. Um, the other thing was that we had these logos of MIT, Cornell, Caltech, IBM, like just um, these brand names. And we said that the developers came from there, and the developers did come from there. So imagine, you know, you seeing something that says you can get an MIT developer in five minutes. Of course, you click the button to see, like, just to even see if it's true yeah if they're trolling you so i think that uh, a big part of it was offering something that even in something that some might think is a crowded space offering something that was very clearly unique and uh useful uh was kind of what helped helped us out in the early days so uh, we would see people posting the site on various forums and you know talking about how you know either people were saying oh, this is impossible, or people were saying, wow, this is awesome. But in any case, it, it, it sparked conversation. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of our sales uh, are definitely inbound because we have this live component to it where we say, um, and that's always been part of it from the beginning, where we say, like, you can literally start your project in, in minutes. Like, you can start talking to someone on the site um, in minutes. And so, um, so, yeah, so people know that, and so I think that, that helps a lot. Uh, and then obviously you have to do good work, right? So people start projects, you have to do a good job. If you do a good job, then it'll tell other people, and that's good. Uh -huh. I'm just here curiously taking notes. <laughs> so speaking, speaking on that, like um, the because I know most marketplaces, especially the ones that offer a service, they live or die by the quality of work that they give to their clients. So yep. how do you maintain that standard and quality? I mean, I'd like to, if it's not top secret, to hear a bit more about your vetting process. I think it's great that now you don't have to interview all the freelancers, mm -hmm. but you said you have some sort of playbook mm -hmm. that the, what I call them, super admins or super project managers. Engineering partners. Come on. You have to call them. <laughs> yeah. Forgive me, engineering partners. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so 
Could you talk us through that life cycle? I've learned that titles are actually important. I didn't know that before. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, you have to, yeah, you, 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 yeah. If you haven't learned that, you'll learn it. Like, okay. people actually care about titles. Oh, so you have to. <laughs> okay, I guess I'm, I guess I'm the only one. Yeah, not, not necessarily to me, but to people. <laughs> okay, 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 in that case. I, I was thinking to you now. So. No, 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 not okay. to me, but to people. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. So yeah, hearing about the process, that how you keep the quality top notch on Gitster. Yeah. So I mean, I think with these questions, always like you know, people and then process and then like tools, um, and uh, you know, you have to get really good people. But even with really good people, I mean, you can imagine getting like five amazing writers, right? And imagine they have a manager that tells them to write gibberish they will mm -hmm. produce rubbish. So it's not just the people. It's also like, what process are you putting these people through? Uh, and then like, what tools are you giving them to use to, uh, to actually do a good job? Um, so on the, on the people side, how do we vet them? Um, they're developers, so they better know how to write code. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> they, better, <laughs> they better know how to uh, you know, write it in some languages that are actually relevant today. Like you know, the, if you develop in Fortran or or basic, like that's really great for you. But, um, you know, right now the demand we're seeing is off of that. So you might get weighted a little lower, but I think you, mm -hmm. you basically define what it is. Like I said earlier, you define what it is that you want your, like if someone were to take, um, someone from, uh, I don't know, like some party in Nigeria, some political party in Nigeria or some political party in the U S like they might say, Oh, like, a Republican is usually conservative and they usually like the free market and yada, yada, yada. And um, they can't, you can describe what that person is usually like. So I think it's the same with Gixer. You say, oh, a Gixer is usually someone who um, works a lot on projects on the side. M you know, we have a reputation that maybe we kind of bias towards people who've gone to good schools or gone to, uh, you know, work at good companies or are just freakishly smart people, whatever. But they're usually people who've worked on projects a lot. They're people who are very smart, people who can communicate really well, um, and people who are actually, you know, good at practical development. Uh, we, we like people who are good at algorithms and kind of abstract computer science as well, but you can't be only good at that. You have to actually know how to build Do stuff. something and practical. So, yeah, and so a lot of our interviews are structured such that we will we will test for practical knowledge first. And then if you pass that, then we'll like kind of do, you know, challenge you and ask you something maybe harder. But even if you don't do well on the challenge, if you've done very well on the practical, you, you're probably gonna, uh, gonna get in. So uh, the vetting process is basically that people apply, they fill out an application, they write, and the application is very practical, very focused on projects. So what projects have you built? What's the hardest project you've worked on? Um, you know, like you, you write little paragraphs about it. You, you put links to those projects. You obviously put your LinkedIn, your GitHub, your all that stuff. And then someone actually goes through and, um, you know, we have software for ranking things and all that, but we still have people look at these applications and then these applications get passed on to the interview stage if they're good. Uh, most of them at that point are not good. So they just get rejected from that point. But 
the ones that that make it through get to the interview stage and then you do about two interviews with these partners so, so first interview if you do amazingly well in the first interview then you're you just get in to gigster you get a, you get a project and that's like a trial project okay. if you do well on the trial then great um, but if you're kind of borderline on the first interview or you know okay you do a second interview and then if you do well on that you get in so that's kind of the that's kind of the vetting uh, pipeline and what if you get somebody who does well on two interviews, gets a sandy sample project, and just messes it up? Has that ever happened? Um, it's very rare, but yes, if it happens, they, they you know they they get kicked out of the, of the network, or or we try to assess why it happened, and then we give them a better project that's a better match, or you know they you know, there's also a reputation um, kind of system within the within the network, so. Um, so you you could actually have some gigsters that are you just be, like all gigsters are not created equal, right? So mm-hmm. some gig, some gigster comes in and they're amazing. Uh, they get in with a certain uh, basically we, we call it karma within within the network. So they get a, they get a certain karma score, um, just like on Reddit or Hacker News. Um, and then like based on your karma score, you can take certain projects. Um, and so if you have really high karma, you can do. Um, Really, um, really high profile projects with, with, you know, a lot of risk associated with them, um, probably bigger budgets as well. And so what can happen is instead of necessarily kicking someone out, is, is effectively like demoting the person. So you might, you know, deduct some karma points and now they can't do whatever that project was. But if someone's really, really bad, they, they get kicked out of the network because quality, as you said, is everything. That would suck. Do you have, um, so if you get kicked out of the Geekster community, is there any coming back or are you gone for good? <laughs> uh, it depends. It depends on why I got kicked out. If you got kicked out for quality reasons, you can apply again, sure. Um, in fact, if you get rejected, you can always apply, like, because people get better, people change, right? And then the interview process is not perfect as well. So maybe you, you know, maybe you got, like, the wrong side of that interviewer that day, or maybe. Uh, you know, not, not the wrong side of the interview, but you know, maybe you were just not on your game or something. So mm-hmm. applying again is always fine, and uh, it's only if you got if you got kicked off of something, uh, you know, ethically wrong <laughs> or something like that, uh, or you were just really unresponsive or you know something that's not actually related to your ability as a developer. Yeah, we, we probably pers- yeah, we, yeah, we probably would not let you back in. <laughs> What's your acceptance rate like for people that come on? I can't say the exact numbers, but it's pretty low. It's like what you would, you know, what, what, what is MIT's accept rate or what is Harvard's accept rate or... I like uh, the comparisons you are bringing up. <laughs> <laughs> what is what is Unilag's accept rate? You know, like whatever, whatever those numbers are. Uh, yeah, so I, mean, I didn't mean to use those schools, but uh, the, the the point is that it's it's low, but it's actually not like the part reason. Part reason I don't want to talk about those big numbers is I actually don't think that number is that uh, useful. Uh, you you'll find people saying, "Oh, our acceptance rate is two percent." Okay, what if you got ten thousand really bad applicants applying? It should be two. Better be two percent. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like like I think Harvard's accept rate is like maybe five or something, um, and uh, MIT's is like nine point something. So someone's going to tell me that MIT is worse than Harvard because its accept rate is higher. 
No, it's because the people who apply to MIT already self-select. Like yeah. a lot of people who know they can yeah. never get into MIT yeah. are not going to apply to MIT. Yeah. So Gigstar actually has that same issue where sometimes I look at the people I find, I'm like, wow, these guys are really good. Like, you know, like a lot of them are really good. We should just accept all of them, but we can't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, so yeah, so, so talking about, it's more like, you know, and then how do you quantify quality is a really hard thing. So um, I just, I can just say that we have a very thorough process of checking and rechecking after people get in and then focus more on uh, the quality of the projects that we ship, like how happy are the customers. And, uh, you know, that that's ultimately the, the measure of quality that really matters. I guess that, that for me was actually more of the question I was asking, like, do you have a quota of people you can take in or would you take in everybody who is good? Or how do you... Well, so there's a there's a thing where like if you have two projects, you don't want one thousand developers because yeah. there are not enough projects for them. Um, so uh, one one forcing function is um, balancing what's coming in with the developers that are applying. Uh, but the really neat thing about Gigster is that you know these developers are not just individual kind of you know developers just kind of working on projects like they work on teams together and um, yeah. there's a lot of like becoming a gigster is a is a thing of increasingly becoming a thing of pride for a lot of the people who join and so it's becoming this uh, kind of community of people and so the more it becomes that um, the more you can accept more people even even when they're not projects because they value just being on gigster not necessarily yeah. like being on Gigster yeah. to even just work on a project. But, you know, the core of what we do is deliver projects. So that's probably the main thing that, that, that keeps um, a, a quota of some sort. Yeah. And then, like, I like how you said, even if they're not getting jobs, like, immediately, or projects immediately, there's something about wanting to be part of Gigster. Is that something you consciously or deliberately do? Or is it that the community just sort of self-organizes and people start, I don't know, creating the community they want to be part of? I mean, it's definitely, it was absolutely consciously designed by, you know, I definitely freaked out about that at the beginning. I, I knew from the beginning that I wanted uh, them to feel like, oh, I'm a gigster. That's cool. Now, if you go on, if you go on LinkedIn and you search gigster, you'll see like hundreds no. of people oh. who have put gigster on their LinkedIn. Even though they don't <laughs> actually work. They don't actually work at gigster. Yeah. They're just gigsters. And yeah. so it's yeah. good, but it's also kind of uh, confusing <laughs> to people, right? Because like if someone wants to work at gigster, um, like as a full-time person, they might think that we already have 100 employees, but actually we have like nine employees <laughs> yeah. so uh so 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 that's so that, that that's something that like right from the beginning i thought i think we thought was 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 going to be very important but over time like even though we put the structures in place and we really like worried about it um over time mm -hmm. you know when you have hundreds of people there will definitely be self self self-organizing kind of behaviors that happen and so you just embrace that so now people have made up like different words, different slangs to refer to different things within the community. People have made their own like little, uh, people have met up in person. So, uh, wow. so yeah, things are happening at this point that are definitely beyond my specific uh, control or design. But uh, I think it's because we made it so at the beginning. All right. Super cool.
Okay, cool. And so, do you have any techie questions? Because I have like a shitload of other questions. Are you serious? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I, I was going to just lighten the mood a bit and um, say something like this. So, I don't know. Someone told me, I overheard something about you, Debo, that um, once upon a time you used to rap. So, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, is that, still, is that still something you do? You know, yeah, maybe in I the mean, bathroom or something. I'm not, one of these, I'm not one of these people that say that they retired and all that. I'm definitely not retired. I just I just have a lot going on. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, I'm one of these people that talk to themselves while walking around. Okay. And um, I actually almost got in trouble for that one time uh, in Palo Alto. I was walking down the road and I was talking to myself about some 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 serious stuff. Okay. And then, like, the neighbors saw me from... This was when I was in East Palo Alto. They saw me from, like, their window or whatever. And, like, I, I'm not going to... I'm not going to say it was because I was black, but who knows, right? I'm walking <laughs> around, and I'm talking to myself, and they're, like... Next thing I see, the police is behind me. Oh, wow. They're like, yeah, they're, like, sir. <laughs> you know, how's it going today? I'm, like, ah, what the hell? <laughs> it's going well. <laughs> they're, like, oh, you know, you're... You know, uh, is everything okay? I'm like, yeah, everything is okay. You know, and, and you know, I'm I'm one of those people that I don't I don't like. I mean, I, I guess I should have known that. Yeah. Uh, there was something up, and I'm being profiled or whatever. But I was just honestly surprised that they were stopping me and asking me questions when I, all I was doing was just walking on top of myself. Eventually, told me that oh, the neighbor saw me talking to myself and walking around and they thought that there was something up okay. and is everything okay? And was, I explained to them like, no, I just do that all the time. So anyways, the point <laughs> is, uh, you know, when I was actively rapping and putting music out, that's, that's actually how I would come up with my, my verses is just walk around and come up with the rhymes and remember them. Um, so that is something I can't really control. So that still happens for sure. Okay. And hopefully one day I will, uh, make time to go back to the studio and record some more music, but yeah. <laughs> I, my my name was Levels. I oh, was really? Like, yeah, I. Okay. I mean, can I, I Google? Can I? Okay, that's that's like very general. So what can, what can I Google and find? Well, if you go to like if you go to like YouTube, okay, and you just oh. Google like uh, <laughs> Google like No Church in the Wild Levels, okay, you'll see a video of me rapping. If you Google levels, uh, you should see a bunch of like, say, No Church in the Wild is, is a video where like towards the end is one of the like la latter songs I made. But um, the last Naija song I put out was Friday Levels with uh, Victoria Kimani. Victoria okay. Kimani is like, I think she's popular now in Nigeria. She's she's do she's with MI's label. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, but I yeah I was a, I was a, I was a big I was a big time rapper. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. All right. I say I say I am still a rapper for sure, but I I haven't released anything in damn like almost four years now. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right then. Um, I was I was going to I was I was going to go further and say um, if you can like I don't know. A random freestyle? No, show. that's not gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't freestyle for free. Ah, <laughs> I see. Okay. okay, so we'll just look for you on YouTube. Okay, yeah. so can I continue with all yeah. my line of yeah. examination? <laughs> yeah. 
But I mean, um, you can also. I I think you. you I mean, it shouldn't be one sided. Tola has been quizzing you so much. I think it's almost like she wants you to absolve yourself of some crime or something. So maybe you two should throw some questions back at her. Yeah. I just have so. a lot of questions as well. But yeah, please feel free to ask us questions at any time. Um, oh, um, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I don't have any questions right now. But as, as we talk, I might, I might come up with questions, I guess. Okay. All right. So. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I, I wanted to ask a bit about your funding. Like, how did you get Anderson Horowitz to invest in you guys? Oh, how did we get them? <laughs> we Sorry. we pitched them the and they <laughs> and they said yes. <laughs> I, I don't mean to be Charlie, but <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, I guess I guess to be a little bit more serious, now, um, it's uh, it's hard work, man. Raising money is not. Is, first of all, raising raising money is not winning. It's not like oh, because you raised whatever, you're 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 now you know. It just puts you in a better place for sure. Uh, but at the same time, you you've collected money from someone, and now you have to deliver, right? And yeah. you have to do a really good job, and there's a lot of expectations and so on. But I think uh, I, I think the key is uh, something that Paul Graham actually said, and it was something that I had sort of figured out for myself before reading his essay. Uh, but when I read his essay, I was like, wow, okay, this is confirming this. But the idea is that you should always tell yourself the truth. Like, don't lie to yourself because yeah. you know you know what's going on. So, like, you're doing a startup um, mm -hmm. and you, you know that your startup is not working or you know that people don't really like what you're doing yet because, like, everyone hits that snag, right, and then they, they iterate, iterate, and then they figure it out. Or they scrap the idea and they try another one. But always know like when what you're doing is working and when it's not and so what, what people usually do is they try to check all the boxes like okay i have a team i have a product i have an idea i have a blah 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 i have a website so i'm gonna go raise money well that's not really how it works it's, it's like i have a i have a product i have a team the product is working and i want to accelerate it or at least it's working in a lot of dimensions and i want to go accelerate it and then that, and then that's when you raise money and obviously like the earlier, um, the earlier you are in the in the process, the the lower the bar for, for how much progress you have to have demonstrated. Mm -hmm. But when you haven't demonstrated any progress, or or more importantly, you know in your heart that like you're not really sure that what you're doing is will, is yeah it will, will work or yeah you know, or people would um yeah people yeah, <laughs> people want yeah, yeah. it ultimately exactly like when you when you you always know. So if you tell yourself the truth and you're hard on yourself. Um, and you just wait till you feel like, because you never know, you know, like there's always, like only the paranoid survive. So you'll always be worried about something. And so you'll never know 100%, but you will, you will, you, you know, you, especially if you've done other things, you'll know relative to those other things that, wow, yeah. this one is, this one is, the, you know, this one is, this one seems promising. And then you can go like talk to people and actually people will perceive that when you're talking to them well, about your idea, right? Because, True. yeah, because you, You'll almost not even be talking like you need them, right? You'll be, you'll just be telling them, "Hey, this is what it is. This is what it is," and you'll just keep saying that, and and it'll, it'll, it'll come across. So, not specific to address it, obviously, but just general, like, I guess, advice from what from what I've picked up is, I think the main difference between Gigster and sort of 
hundred other things I've tried in the past is just the level of conviction that, you know, we're able to get to and just the level of belief that we're able to get to in the product and the idea itself. Like I said, um, you know, we, we came at it from a very authentic place. Like I've, I wanted this. I, this is something that I would be using every day if I wasn't if, actually yes. putting the product. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So like that's part of it. And so that also helps you, uh, increase your level of, uh, kind of belief in the thing, but it's not that complicated. Just tell yourself the truth. Like, no, know, know what it is you're supposed to check for. Check if you have it. If you don't have it, don't raise money. Go, go keep working. And then once you have it, you're, you're, um, you're awesome. So in terms of Andreessen itself, I think that they're great. Um, they're great fit because, uh, because like they believe that software is eating everything. And so this just fits right into the idea that like, oh, software is going to be more and more important across all industries. Yeah, and then so, this is now software for making software. It's like so meta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so oh, it's yeah. like, okay, this is, this is a great, um, is a great fit. So, but yeah, it, it was hard, man. There's no, there's no way, there's no other way to say it was hard. It was very hard. And it's, it's supposed to be hard, I guess, because there are lots of companies trying to, trying to raise money in a very like crowded venture space. So, but I think the main difference is just like traction and like getting to a point where you believe in wait, what it is you're doing so much that people, other people see it. Yeah. yeah. I have a question about that also, like raising funding. I feel like for Gitster, with or without um, the investment, you would have some like substantial amounts of revenue coming in because the, the platform pays for itself from day one. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I know that some people just think they want to raise money because it sounds like the cool thing to do and everybody's doing it and hey, we want to be valued as unicorns or something. <laughs> but more, asking more about the, the rationale behind why you felt it was time at the point when you started raising yeah. to raise something from them. I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think the, the way to think about this is <clears throat> like a lot of people just for it based on um, do you... Like, are you in a, uh, I think Joel Spolsky has a, has an essay on this. That's pretty good. It's basically like, are you, are you building like a Ben and Jerry's ice cream thing or, um, are you building Amazon? And it's not to say that like Ben and Jerry's is less on Amazon or anything, but it's basically, are you in a market where, uh, it's winner take all, where one person can actually take all of the market share such that you don't exist anymore? Or are you in a market where actually many people can exist and it's all good, right? So mm-hmm. does your does your market is your which one are you? If you are in the kind of ice cream maker um, industry, then you don't need to raise money. Basically, what people call a lifestyle business. Like if you're building something that is going to have lots of revenue, going to be cash flow positive, going to make all the founders rich, but not necessarily going to have millions of users, um, then you you really shouldn't be raising money because you're just diluting yourself for no reason. And, you know, but if you're in something where actually if you don't grow really fast and take over, like, you know, get as many users as possible really quickly, someone else is going to do it and you're going to die, then you probably want to be more um, uh, biased towards kind of raising money. So the short answer is um, you can make money, uh, but that's at the uh, it's a trade off between making a lot of profit and growing as fast as possible. And so you can choose which one you want to be like, do you want to make a lot of money? Or do you want to grow as fast as possible? And to grow, to grow as fast as possible, um, usually you, it's, it's almost like you know you're going to make X amount of money in five years. 
So why don't you just get that money now so you can be as big as you'd be in five years today, kind of like mm -hmm. that. So, so that you can actually survive to see five years. Because if you don't do it, someone else is going to do that and get as many users as possible and then squeeze you out of the market. So there's only one Facebook. There's no other social network. There's only one uh, Google. There's no other search engine. I mean, they, 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 there are some that think that they are search engines, but <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just Google. So I think if you, you know, we believe that we're in that sort of space where um, at least we're going to make it that kind of space where um, getting as many users as possible and uh, building all the network effects um, and growing, growing really fast is actually very valuable to us. So we got to a point where we had kind of demonstrated traction, you know, made decent amounts of revenue. And we felt that like the next thing to do was to, to make sure that we, um, we can grow the business as fast as possible. And, uh, and so therefore, to raise money but don't don't raise it anytime before that don't go don't go try to raise money when you're not making any revenues you haven't really figured out whether people like what you're doing i mean you're just going to end up being in debt to all these investors and you're going to be feeling bad every day that something isn't working yeah, so, yeah. okay so um back to the uh, analogy you made about uh, the ice cream Mm -hmm. shop or something that wants to scale and be a winner-take-all kind of situation and all. Mm -hmm. I think uh, to an extent as well, um, these days, even businesses that would have normally been um, small businesses that can still make money anyways, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and like you said, make all the founders rich and all of that, even mm -hmm. though that will have worked, say, like in 1999 or even as recently as 2003, 2005, six, and all. Um, these days, there's a lot of emphasis placed on skill, right? Where, hello? Yeah, we're here. Oh, yeah, I'm here. Okay, okay. Yeah, it went quiet. So there's a lot of emphasis placed on skill where nobody is content or rather you shouldn't be content with, you know, just being that guy servicing 8,000 people. No. You want to take over the North American <laughs> continent. You want to expand to Africa, expand all over the world. And which makes sense because, well, these days the world has, in, um, the internet and everything has made the world a smaller place. So pretty much every, if you have a product on the internet, everybody that has access to the internet is a potential customer. And also, mm -hmm. yeah, so the question now is um, in terms of software or in terms, when basically in terms of, um, I, I, I don't even think this even applies to just software anymore. In terms of anything you do, at what point will you be able to make that distinction that, oh, you know, this is um, a Papa John's ice cream type of business and mm -hmm. I shouldn't bother scaling? Or, no, this is an ice cream business that I want anybody, even people in South Africa, to be able to place an order now and get it in 30 minutes, that kind of thing. Yeah, so... How do yeah, you, how I mean, do you think, know the difference between yeah those two? Oh yeah, I mean I think um, there are so there are two ways two two views of the world you could use. You could use the the passive kind of like scientific view where which is kind of the way you phrased it, where like there there are two businesses and you're trying to tell the difference between them. Yeah, and then you want to study the characteristics and yeah. I can answer that, but. There's another view where it's like, no, I want this versus I want that. And so you could start a pizza shop that wants to scale. 
you could start an ice cream business that wants to scale and then you will be forced to come up with new models like maybe your ice cream is delivered over the internet and maybe your ice cream is delivered through uber so that depending on regardless of where you are you can order the thing and uber will bring the ice cream to you and then maybe you can make a franchise model where you know people in different countries can make their little ice cream shops you give them like a starter kit or whatever like yeah it'll, it'll force you to start thinking in a way that isn't the way the person who just wants to be local thinks. Yeah. Um, so I think one one answer is just that it depends on what you want. Like, do you want to um, do you want to get rich or do you want to build something that uh, you know billions of people use? And there's no nothing wrong with either one. Or do you want <laughs> or do you actually want to make something just for one thousand people because maybe those one thousand people are you know. Yoruba people that live in Lagos in Ikeja, like maybe you want those people to be really happy because they have a, a sewage problem that you care a lot about. So like, you know, whatever matters to you, you you can decide that that's what you want to work on. But then the other question, if you look at it and just say, okay, like we're scientists and we're just trying to figure out what's the difference between these two businesses. Um, I think the difference is competition. So are you doing something that there are lots of people doing or that is easy for lots of people to do? To do in, that, in that case, like, you're most likely going to be um, you know, a small business. Like, a lot of people can make barbershops. A lot of people can make you know, hair salons. A lot of people can make like, restaurants. You know, a lot of people can make, you know, uh, hell, even airline companies, a lot of them. Like, so whenever there are a lot of people that can do something, um, I think you're, 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 and then you're getting into it when there are already a lot of people doing it with no like unique kind of differentiation yeah. or advantage. Then I think you, you're already accepting anyways that like, yeah, you're not trying to be super big. Right? Yeah, just, just, but if you're doing, yeah, but if you're doing something so. that is new, um, even if it's in a crowded market, if the thing you're bringing is new, then uh, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is like uh, the distribution. Um, mechanism like is it the internet if it's the internet and you're doing something new chances are you're probably building something that can scale but if it's physical distribution of some sort um and then it's now also kind of not new and there's a lot of competition uh you're you're probably not building something that scales that's that's perfect all right all right tolu yeah i <laughs> You want me to take over? Okay, so um, <laughs> random question. One of them is the cliche one that you always close out when you're talking with somebody who's doing something really amazing as an entrepreneur, just generally in the world. And you know that people listening will get some kind of inspiration, motivation from it. You ask them. Oh, boy. No, I mean, um, I guess for me, it will be, what's, what's one thing you wish you had known? Or the one thing that has been a very key learning for you throughout this journey of building Geekstar? Uh, well, if I expand the journey to be like just my whole journey up till now, yeah. uh, I would say I would say one thing jumps to mind immediately, but I definitely want to emphasize the thing I said earlier about telling yourself the truth because mm -hmm. and that's not the one thing, but I want to emphasize that again because I feel like people don't really get how deep that is. Like people just yeah. kind of keep going with the flow. You're like, really, really sit down, ask yourself, is what yeah. you're doing, does it, is it shit? 
if it is, stop doing it. Just stop. Like there's, <laughs> there's thousands of ideas right now that you could be working that, on. Exactly. You're stopping yourself from doing that because you're doing this shit that you're doing. And someone else might tell your idea is shit and you won't want to believe it because, oh, they're a hater or whatever. And so, so, so I'm not even asking you to go and ask people, even though that's also a good thing to do. Ask people that are really smart what they think about your idea. But you yourself, you're smart, right? Sit down in your house, lock the door, think, is this thing, does this thing make sense? Are my users telling me, the, uh, do my users like this? How big is the market? Blah, blah, blah. Why am I doing this? Why am I the best person to do this? And, and uh, just keep asking yourself that all the time. And if the answer is not what it should be, just stop doing it or change it or whatever. So tell us all the truth. But the thing that I would say from, for myself personally is just fail. Like if I was talking to myself from way back, I would say, uh, just fail faster. Like yeah. I, 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 I held on to too many things for too long. Uh, you know, I, I should have just, I should have just um, scrapped them or changed them much earlier than I, than I did. So, you know, I, I'd have, Is this I'd have you a project that I was working on. The Nigerian on. one now. Uh, the Instacart one. Instacart. Yeah, things like that. There were there were, there were numerous things like that that we don't have to get into. <laughs> where where like I would be doing the thing for like a year or two years, and uh, and I think that there are some things you should stick with for sure. Like especially once you're telling yourself the truth and you know that oh this thing is just going to take a while to to really take off. If if that's one of the things you're doing, that's fine. But if it's not one of those things and you are just I don't know for whatever reason maybe you don't want people to think you give up. Or maybe you don't want people to think that they were right when they told you your idea was wrong. I don't know what it is for mm -hmm. different people, you, but you want you... to prove people wrong. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I can just... do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just like stick to something for too long um, instead of just failing and calling it a day, and then using the lessons you learn from that to do something else or take a break. Even um, I would say that's a that's a, that's the number one thing I I wish I'd done better, but no regrets. Well, I mean, I, I totally relate with the telling yourself the truth. I actually wrote it down today, like when I was just, I guess, reflecting on things that I thought I, I had learned so far since starting with Scribe. And the first thing for me was, like, you can't bullshit everybody else, but make sure you don't bullshit yourself. Like, yeah, just make sure <laughs> I mean, you're going to you're gonna live with yourself the most. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the second thing for me was just that you really don't know until you know. So, I mean, before I came, before I started working on a startup full time, I had taught and worked with other entrepreneurs and I told them what to do. Like, I, had, I understood the theory of it. Mm -hmm. When it came to the, it was just so vastly different, even though it was exactly the same. I don't know how else to explain it, but I was like, you just don't know until you're in there doing it and like trying to figure stuff out. But yeah. I digress, as always. Yeah, I mean, there's, um, definitely, there's definitely a difference between, uh, you know, even, like, the beginning of a startup, before a startup, the beginning of a startup, when the startup is growing, when the startup becomes a huge organization. Like, those are all just completely different experiences. So if there are people that are, quote-unquote, entrepreneurs, but then they learn eventually, oh, they have to become a manager, then they have to become like a you know manager of managers, and it's you're just learning all the time. So, mm -hmm. yeah. um, one I guess I don't know if this is like more light-hearted, but not exactly relevant to gig stuff I say. But there was something you said about um, the future being that we'll have robots doing this thing for us. So, I guess the question is, 
do you think the machines will take over the world? <laughs> uh, yeah, once again, this is one of those things where you could analyze it scientifically and be like, okay, will the machines take over the world? Or you can be more active about it and you can say, do we want the machines to take over the world or not? And uh, so I'm more and more, I guess it's weird because uh, my background is physics and in physics you kind of assume that the world is the way it is and then you study it. So you don't like say, I want gravity to work the other way. So I'm going to make that happen. (laughs) You say, oh, gravity works like this. Let's calculate, blah, blah, blah. So, So it's been a struggle for me, but uh, I think both perspectives are good because if you if you lie to yourself and say like oh I want this to happen but that thing is impossible then like once again you're wasting your time but at the same time I think I do think that there are certain things that, I mean I, I do think that entrepreneurs what they do is make the impossible possible in some very wishy-washy vague kind of way um, so I do think that there's room for these kinds of things where we don't really know the answer um, to say okay this is the future we want. And the future that I want is one where the machines are making us more productive, more, you know, happier, more, uh, more. And that's what's been happening so far. So the computer is a machine in some sense, and it's made us vastly more productive. The Internet is, uh, you know, is, is an extension to the computer. It's made us vastly more connected, vastly more productive. So, you know, uh, these machines, quote unquote, are just going to be an extension of the computer and the Internet and all the data that we have. So... Given what we've managed to do so far, we've managed to make them uh, us our partners. Let me not say servants. Uh, so, <laughs> so going forward, I want it to be that. It's just that. It's just that. What would happen is a lot of the tasks that we do right now that are repetitive and not that inspiring. Uh, we can have these machines do it for us, and so we can sit down and just like write poetry and you know think and do art and stuff uh, and you know rap. And have the machines be the ones like <laughs> cooking our food and uh, coding and whatever. So that's the future that I would yeah. want. There's something I've always been like randomly think, just thinking about. Um, like okay, regarding this subject as well. So you know, um, there's this talk about um, Uber. The CEO of Uber very much interested in self-driving cars and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, he was even talking to was it Elon or something like um, he would be the first. He would. He was pre-ordering 500 of his cars <laughs> when, he, when he eventually comes comes up with them. I know. Mm-hmm. Now, that's interesting. On the technology side, it's actually very interesting. It means, oh, um, they can begin to... Uh, Uber can eventually become cheaper, right? Because there is no driver to pay, per se. So all you're paying for is the maintenance of the vehicle and all that. That's the only cost to Uber. And then, of course, to... Um, keeping Uber up and running as well. But that also has a net negative effect to the drivers who are currently making money off Uber today. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, we're just having this conversation before the recording where we're saying, oh, even though the Super Bowl is in town and all that, um, it's weird because there's no such pricing as such on Uber. Maybe yeah. a lot of them are in town. You know, yeah. everybody's in town trying to make money off the rush and all that. So right. what happens when... As technology people, yes, we hope um, robots would eventually come in to replace all of these many tasks because we believe they'll be able to do them more efficiently and all. But then that also puts a lot of people out of um, either jobs or opportunity to make secondary income. Yeah. You just have to step up your game then. I mean, 
that's why we're human beings. We tell we we outsource the things that we can't we don't want to do repetitively to robots, and then the things that we can do, like Deva was saying, creatively writing poems, rapping, all the other <laughs> things that are, as I guess, exclusive to being human and the emotions that come with it, and the what um, flexibility or versatility that comes with being a human being. I guess then we have to evolve and step up to do other things that are way more advanced, I guess. Yes, yeah, right. the robots. Well, I think I think yeah, that's right. I, but I think like immediately sort of um well first let me let me like respond to the first thing. I was like I talked about the part where we what we want, but then but if I were just to analyze like will the machines take over? I think there's a very strong chance that the machines can't take over. Um just if we just analyze what it, what does it mean? To, to make intelligent beings. The simplest way to think about it is like, the way machines work, the way uh, artificial intelligence right now works is we say, um, here's a goal that we want something to achieve. Uh, what's the most efficient way of achieving that goal? So for example, if you're trying to pre predict the, how, uh, the price of a house or something, you're trying to write some, some robot that can predict the price of a house, you'll say, hey, like, here's a bunch of data around the prices of houses. And try to, you know, everybody knows like linear, best fit, regression, lines, whatever. But you tell the robot like, hey, try to try to figure out a model that can guess the price of these houses that's the, that's the closest to all the prices that we really saw in the data. So that when you see a new uh, house, given the dimensions, the location, whatever the variables are, you can give us a, a good guess. But you don't tell the robot how to do it. You just tell it your yeah. goal is to minimize the the delta between what you say and what it is. So the problem with that is you can imagine telling a robot like, oh, your goal is to keep the streets clean. And then it figures out the best way to keep the streets clean. And then it figures out that the best way to keep the streets clean is to kill all people because people are the ones that dirty the streets. <laughs> you know, so these are kind You've of like unexpected so much outcomes movies. that you that you can get from the robot, even even though the robot has like good intentions. The other thing is that if you make robots that can make themselves smarter. You know, then you can say like, okay, the thing is twice as smart next week, then twice as smart, and then you can get exponentially smarter. And once the thing is like way smarter than human beings and way smarter than it was yesterday, there's no way you can see, there's no way I can see that we can evolve as fast as that. And so they, they will take over. So I think that it, like in a real, very real sense, uh, the robots can't take over. That's why stuff like OpenAI that um, Elon Musk just launched with uh, Sam Altman yeah. um, is really important because what those guys are doing all they're doing, their whole entire job is to figure out how we can make sure that robots work in our favor. And I think we need more and more people studying that because I think a lot of people kind of blow it off. And I, I get that it's not going to happen next year. It's not going to happen two years from now or whatever. But a lot of people blow it off that like, oh, you know, everybody's always been freaking out about robots. But I, I, those two examples I just gave, I challenge anyone to refute the soundness of them. Like that can happen, you know, theoretically. So we should definitely freak out. Now, in terms of the um, the jobs, I think what happened, what's happened historically is that we just make new jobs. We make new kinds of jobs. Like, there are jobs that existed, in, you know, 50 years ago that don't exist anymore. Like, yeah, the jobs sure. that existed 20 years ago that, like, typewriter or typist or whatever. Like, I, when I was growing <laughs> up, there were people whose jobs were to type on typewriters yeah. and type letters. Like, that job does not exist. I mean, maybe there's still some people that, that do that. Stenographers or something, but yeah, <laughs> I get job, you. That job doesn't exist anymore. And what happened is people, people instead, like, they learned how to type on computers. And then even that job doesn't really, I mean, I guess we still have business centers and stuff in Nigeria, but that's a job that's trending down because people have learned how to 
type on their own. And so you now you have new jobs. Like there was no such thing as a recharge card seller before until we got recharge cards. And so what we'll do is we'll just create the new technology we'll create. We'll, we'll need people to support to support it. So the new technology we'll create will create new jobs. And sometimes we can't predict, predict ahead of what, time that what those jobs yeah. would be. But so as I much have, as today I, have I, a lot of I can say, oh yeah, Uber drivers will be out of a job, job and all that because of that. Yeah. I can't exactly say what that future would look like and yeah you can't say what the opportunities new would, be. would become yeah, yeah, I guess yeah there need to be new jobs but those new jobs would be um things that are that, that are caused by the new technologies we created yes. so yes. uh autonomous driving like so like, for example even self-driving cars let's say um somebody needs to somebody somebody needs to I, somebody could go make a business that um provides like parking spaces for self-driving cars or something uh, and it's like oh like my business does the, you know or or even you know, like true true th- this guy's th- this guy's <laughs> doing space tourism uh elon musk and Jeff bezos are fighting yeah. each other all the time trying to go to space and somebody could have the bright idea to make like a hotel on mars or something and that's that's just like a and then there are waitresses space waitresses that's a job that we never <laughs> we never thought was possible before uh-huh. so I think what happens is all these new crazy technologies, they come with their own jobs that we need and then they create new jobs for people. All right. Yeah, I think that, that answers it. Um, we are ready an hour, 20 minutes into okay. this episode. Okay. So basically we're at the end of it already. So okay. yes, thank you for coming on board. Kevin, <laughs> um, yeah, I'll ask you, ask you guys a question. I guess I didn't ask any questions. Like, why do you guys do this? Why do you guys do this podcast? And, <laughs> you know, why, why, why do you do what you do? Okay. Aside from the podcast, like, why do you do Paystack? And why do you do Scribe? So, two questions. All right. All right. Um, let, me answer, let me answer the podcast first of all. So, yeah. Um, I'll say this. I've been... Okay, well, I've been actively involved in the um, ecosystem... Or let me say in the Nigerian technology ecosystem um, for like 10 years now. Um, let's say, but most of the time it was more from an observation standpoint, um, looking at developers, looking at um, what they do, looking at um, going for events, and um, basically just generally observing. I know. How you there? Yeah. Yeah. And then what I, what I came to notice was um, I was so par um a number of um what's it called is it skill set on the skill set side and all of that so part compared to what i would uh, expect or at least what i thought should have been the norm number one number two was um how um, little information for some weird reason people are access uh, people find accessible or find access to um it might also be as a, it might be some form of selective um, selectiveness on their part, but it's kind of like people would rather um, read what they want to read as against read what they should be reading, read about what mm-hmm. they should be reading and stuff. So, yeah, um, I mean, I started reading TechCrunch since back in 2006, I think, and all of that. And um, you meet people, say, in 2011 or 2012, and then they are talking to you about some weird startup they are working on. And then the next thing they are talking about is how they want to raise funding for it and how they, you know, and then they are talking in the million-dollar range and all. And then you are, like, thinking, sorry, um, 
why are you thinking this? What what exactly have you been reading, or why do you think you understand? You know, basically mm-hmm. misplaced priorities and all of that. So, um, I just kind of started having this um, need or some sort. I don't know. It might also be because I actually like arguing and I like um, <laughs> basically saying my yeah. mind. Yeah, like just talk you down and win the argument. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Um, I think from that, basically, like, you know, let's, um, a conversation with like-minded people that um, tries to set the record straight in different uh, aspects and all of that. And then, of course, we know there are certain things that uh, maybe because I read wider and all of that, or, well, my friends also do, and all, you know, we can, like, just have general conversations about new technologies, um, new random stuff and all of that, and also even about... uh, Things happening within the country as well, like new startups. Well, um, is this guy doing something interesting? How how differently can we see the future of what they are doing and um, how it's going to impact the rest of us and all of that? So yeah, things like that. So that's that's how the idea for the podcast came up, and um, I um this has actually been at the back of my mind for quite some time then i met uzo and then ran the idea by him last september and then we're like cool yes this is something we should totally do so october we started recording and well so far so good the up the well how would i put it our audience has been growing in numbers which is rather surprising because um at first, we did not think in number a lot of people would subscribe to what we're doing, and also, well, we've also now seen a reason to maybe take it a little bit more seriously up our game. And our last episode, we're talking about uh, introducing officers on the show because, uh, well, we get a number of questions from different people about their startups individually and all that um, in terms of wanting advice and stuff. So we're thinking, okay, we could incorporate a segment of that as part of the show as well so you know and all that so yeah that's pretty much it on that front then um on the general side when it comes to why do i do what i do in terms of payments right uh, or is it in terms of why am i a developer which one? Oh, in terms of payments like why oh, okay. why are you um yeah why are you working on payments why are you working on all right so yeah um that also goes back to the beginning of my career in um, 2006. Uh, I think one of the first um, consumer-facing products that I um, tried to build was a recharge card website. Um, basically, that's good. Well, there were about two of those in Nigeria at the time. But I was thinking along the lines of, um, I mean, back then, internet access was um, was still very much a luxury, meaning... People were only at um, on, online, say at their places of work or something. And also, um, an online recharge card website needed to be there when they wanted it, meaning they should be able to set up like, oh, okay, I want to get, um, I want to get MTN one thousand five hundred naira, and it's eleven in the night. I don't even have credit on my phone. I don't have um, source of internet. But hey, I have one naira on my phone, which means I can flash a number, right? I mean, if I flash my friend, they can call me back, and then I can tell them, oh, I need credit, and then they will get it to me. So why can't I flash this number that belongs to this service? And this service automatically knows, oh yes, um, this guy says anytime he calls this number, I should send him one thousand five hundred naira at time, and then. 
the service goes ahead to do that. So that was like the plan, that was um, the idea. We rolled it out, but payment unfortunately was a problem, uh, meaning that we could not we could not basically do recurring or returning billing because the providers, the payment providers in Nigeria at the time did not support that. You had to be, you had to have your card in hand and make payments every now and then. So that led me to like introduce some form of purse to the system, which means you could prefill your account with say maybe 10,000 Naira and then it starts getting used up as you as you buy credits using us and all of that and then when it's used up oh, sorry you have to go back online and do that again so that was like my first foray into payments interestingly that was um, the uptake was nice like a lot of people actually started funding their wallets with us and then that brought an idea to me like oh wait i can slowly become a paypal meaning i can put apis on top of this bus or this wallet and let other websites um, developers integrate it to their respective applications. So when people fund their purses, not only can they use it to buy a recharge card on my website, but they can also use it to make payments on other websites as well. And also that was basically where all of that thought process and stuff started. And then years and years of refining and, you know, um, getting more access, uh, better access to, um, uh, more powerful APIs, more low-level APIs, and also learning from how people have used the prior iteration and stuff and all of that has led me to um, this today. And of course, over time, I ended up getting a very, very, very passionate about fixing payments as well. So yes, that's how I got to where I am. <laughs> that's awesome. the story, yeah. No. Um, for me, the first question about the podcast. So I pretty much just crashed the podcast in December. Um, Ezra and I were having a conversation and he's like, oh, we're supposed to record in about 30 minutes or no, it was four hours. Um, I'll talk to you later. I'm like, what if I joined the podcast? And I did. And now I'm a permanent fixture here. But like, the reason why it was interesting to me is because first, I'm just very curious and I almost question everything. So I want to know why and why and why, which is why I was asking you so many questions. My apologies. Um, but I like to learn from people's stories, just hear what they're doing, how they got that way, basically to figure out how things work and why they're that way. And not just the surface conversations you hear people say maybe on social media, the things that they think of or they live every day the things that people don't get to hear about because it doesn't sound cool or sexy enough. I just want to have a good conversation, really. And Crodcast does that for me. It gives me this avenue to meet people that I ordinarily never would have crossed paths with. And then I get to learn from them. Um, I like learning. I'm curious. I like meeting people and hearing their stories. I like technology and entrepreneurship. Then I crashed Crodcast. <laughs> so I guess that's that. <laughs> Oh, sorry. The next logical thing was to crash a podcast that did all those things. Um, and then about Scribe, I guess still on that tangent about um, being in the tech space and liking um, technology and entrepreneurship. I think if you had ever asked me if I would start a startup, I'd have told you no. I just always thought I was more helpful as um, a support. I could be a founding member of a startup, but not actually start a startup because I felt those were where my strengths lay mostly. And then somehow 
I guess when you start being so immersed with other startups, you get that virus. I don't know. Like, I just couldn't imagine <laughs> doing anything different. Like, it seemed like something I wanted to do. I guess all that was left was, what did I like enough to want to start something on? So, I mean, I've started a few things before, none of them as a full-on business. Scribe is the first one that I think I've taken this seriously, staked my reputation and everything else, traveled from the safety of and heat of West Africa to South America for. And it just, I mean, it's something I'm passionate about. It's something I like. I like to write. Um, I see other people who also want to write but don't know where to start from or how to get connected to those jobs. Similar to you, Debo, I also like marketplaces. And I think one of my life missions is to create career opportunities for people in places that they didn't think were likely. So if you ever tell your parents, at least your typical African parent, that you want to be an, a writer and that's how you want to make money, they'll be like, are you crazy? And for me, like, is everybody still there? Yeah. No, <laughs> actually, we, actually we left. That's exactly yeah. how it felt when I was talking. Yeah. I was like, okay, <laughs> hello. I just felt like I was giving the most epic monologue of the century. <laughs> you were, though. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, I guess pretty much that's where Scribe came about. It's 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 an idea I really like, and I'm working with somebody that, that gets it, and we work very well together. So, I mean, the team, it, we didn't intend for it to be this set of checkboxes that we were just ticking off. But in retrospect, it seems that way. It started out with us just being dissatisfied with a particular place we were and thinking how best to make um, a, a similarly gloomy situation good. And that's where Scribe came from. Let's solve our problems and see how it ties into our aspirations in life. And yeah, this happened and we're here. And honestly, I, I wouldn't even say we figured it out at all. Every day is a new learning. Um, I guess what we do have is the conviction that we want this to work. And it's also the, we understand this space and we're interested in it enough to want to see it work um, really well. So yeah, that's most of my story. Awesome. Well, uh, that was good to hear from both of you guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. All right. Yeah. Um, hopefully, um, maybe we'll have you again some other time further down in the future, and it won't be us interviewing you as we did today. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> All right. Because I mean, um, Uzo was asking me yesterday if I had um, questions for you. I'm mean, like, uh, why are we interviewing our guests? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Let me just and then well, yeah, when, I, I got, when I you think, also sent me a, a test, this was a um, setup because Ezra said we're just gonna chat and we're just gonna <laughs> hang out. Exactly. Like, exactly. And I was like, all right. <laughs> We're supposed to chat and hang out. Well, you didn't ask us any questions. We weren't interested enough in the beginning, and now we are. Well, chatting, so well, chatting isn't asking questions, right? It's just chatting. So, so I, oh, like, I, I guess fair enough. Yeah. I guess the setup could have been so much different. But yeah, you know. But really, this was really good. Um, I personally enjoyed this conversation, and like Ezra said, hope to have you back on the show. With or without you coming back on Quadcast, I still want to speak with you about, well, things and pick your brain. Um, so hopefully, off the record, we can continue conversation. For sure. All right. Um, thank you guys for listening. And, um, see you next week. All right. Cheers, guys.
night Holding you tight As a brother when I saw you crying eyes Time went by And we had to say goodbye Staring up to the clouds above Children so little and sad Hoping the saints could help one day Lead us together 